Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. I'm about to share with you. My guest is a human rights investigator, best known for his investigations into forced organ harvesting in China, an industry that is alive and well, as you'll hear shortly. He is a Nobel Peace Prize nominee and the acclaimed author of Losing the New China, The Slaughter, and co-author of a 2016 investigative report which examined the transplant programs of hundreds of hospitals in China. His investigations paint a very disturbing account of the unimaginable events in China which show that innocent people are being rid of their organs while still alive and Chinese hospitals are profiting from the organ transplants to overseas recipients. Based on interviews with top-ranking police officials and Chinese doctors who have killed prisoners on the operating table, he has testified that the number of casualties is upwards of 100,000 people. His investigations into organ harvesting are extensive, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the show to share the horrors he has witnessed over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ethan Gutman. Ethan, thank you for coming to join us on the show today. Uh, another serious subject to be dealt with and handled by somebody I think that's uh, uh, as qualified as any, considering what you've learned and been through over the years and the content of yours that I've consumed online and your passion to be involved in a subject matter that I think in, in the main horrifies most people or just the thought of it horrifies most people. So maybe you can give me an elevator pitch of what you do and why you do it and how on earth you got into it. Oh, um, well, basically, well, there's a lot of talk about genocide right now. Uyghur genocide. What does that really mean? Genocide usually means that you're destroying a people. It usually means mass murder. At least that's part of it. It's the element, key element. Uh, the fact is, this is a slow motion genocide that's been going on for some time that's been taking place in China. And what it is, is there is a, um, people need organs. Foreign organ tourists need organs. People from all over the world need to replace their organs. And China, because it has huge captive populations and they change over time. For a while it was the Uyghurs, then it was Falun Gong, then it we could even house Christians and Tibetans, and now it's back to the Uyghurs again. They have these captive populations, which can be used. And they have, uh, not only that, they have people who are 28 years old, lots of them, around that age, right around 25 to 35. This is the ideal age to take somebody's organ because you're healthy, you're super healthy. But you're also, you, you reach maturity. Your organs aren't gonna grow anymore. So it's perfect. And this is the perfect age and the perfect way to do it as well. The person's still alive. You take the organs out. They're super fresh. It's like cutting flowers uh, with running water. Yeah? It makes a huge difference, actually, if you cut the flowers with running water before you put it in the vase. Same thing. The, body's, the new host is far less likely to reject the organs if you do this. Now, there's a lot of misunderstandings about this. A lot of people think, well, they, they're talking about a single kidney. No, no, I'm talking about the whole kit. All right, we're talking about two kidneys, a liver, two lungs, a heart, two corneas. 
right? Corneas aren't, aren't, aren't actually organs, they're tissues, but, they, 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 but they're like organs, they can be transplanted very easily. In fact, China is the only country that transplants spleens as well. Uh, but, you know, they're very discreet. That's the other thing. So China has a very, very good record. Uh, these operations tend to be very successful. Uh, and that is something that's been taking place for a long time, uh, since at least since 1994, they started doing live organ harvesting of prisoners. And by 1997, the very first political prisoners were operated on. And that was Uyghurs. The same group that's being persecuted, you know, horrendously today is where it started in what the Chinese call Xinjiang, which means new territory. And in that region, that is where China, that is China's laboratory. That is where they do this, <laughs> they try out these things like live organ harvesting and so on and try them out on different age groups. And uh, they've even looked into some specific qualities in Uyghur blood, it's called panda blood so forth and maybe they can do something with that. So there's a lot of, and also bioweapons have been produced there as well. We know this it's for a long time. It's actually a surprise that we had the, that things went bad in Wuhan, not in Xinjiang. Usually that's where it starts, these kinds of things. It is China's dumping ground. And what we're looking at now is a huge population, about a million to a million and a half Uyghurs who are in concentration camps, essentially. I mean, they call them re-education camps, but they're basically camps. And they do forced labor. And the women are often raped. Uh, and the uh, families are broken up. And the 28-year-olds, or the people around that age, disappear in the middle of the night. If they're healthy, they have to be healthy. So. And they have a lot of tests to, to, to go for that. And I, I say this with some great confidence because I'm the person who went out and interviewed people in Kazakhstan last year who were from the camps. These are people who'd never interviewed before. Uh, it, was not a, it was not a large group, but it was not a small group either. It was about 10 people. Uh, it sort of doubled the number of refugees we have in the world by doing this. And I asked them, you know, tell me about the camps and tell me about this and that. And I would also say, tell me if anybody disappeared. And they'd say, yeah, they, a bunch of people did. I said, well, what, what, how old were they? What were they like? Oh, they were 28 years old, 29. Okay. Uh, if it was a woman, I'd say, well, well, these women, did they have something in common? Were they attractive? And this one woman said, no, it's, it's rude to say this, but they weren't particularly good looking at all. And I said, what did they have in common? She said they were healthy. And she was not even speaking about organ harvesting. This is a somewhat hidden procedure. That's why these people disappear in the middle of the night. So this is something we've looked at for many years. And the press has a tendency to sort of approach it like a moth red to flame. They sort of go near it, and then they kind of go, go away. And they say, oh, no, that's too scary. It's really kind of unproven and so forth. Well, no, it's not unproven. Evidence is mounted and mounted and mounted over the years, but it's a very slow process because the Chinese are not doing us any favors. They don't put out documents on this. They don't put out memos. They don't say, we're using Uyghurs for forced labor. They do put out memos on that sort of thing. And they're secret memos, but they get leaked, but they don't put out memos on this. Uh, and that's for two reasons. One is because they are destroying, permanently destroying what they consider to be political enemies. 
But it's also because there's a lot of people making a lot of money off this, uh, probably at the very high levels. There's a lot of Chinese officials who are wetting their beak. Uh, now, it's very hard. That's one of the harder things to prove because money is a, the hardest thing. People say, follow the money. You know, it's one of these phrases people love to use. You can't follow money in China. All right. If you've ever lived in China and worked for a Chinese company, and I have, everything's hidden. Okay, every every profit is recorded as a loss. Everything is the opposite of what it really is. Okay, so to avoid taxes and so forth, uh, money is 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 incredibly fluid in China. It is like it is like water. It is like water. Uh, so we can't say that with absolute confidence. We do have a case or two of top leadership who were on the take in this area. So uh, it's not the this is not the Holocaust. This is not the end of the world. This is, however, the, since the Second World War, this is the gravest medical misconduct that the world's seen. And so the, vic the, victim, the victims of these, these crimes essentially disappear. They're, while they're alive, their organs are harvested, and that's the end of them. The body is discarded and thrown away. The body is burned. We actually have fair evidence on that. Uh, we just, there's a wonderful... Uyghur woman who, uh, she's an investigative reporter at Radio Free Asia, Gulchera Hoja, and I, I often work with her. We have a good relationship. And she called me up when she discovered that there was a hospital built into a camp. And actually the hospital came first. They built the camp around it. 33,000 people in that camp. And the, in the middle of it is this hospital, the Aksu Infection Hospital, which does transplants. Guess what's 900 meters away? 900 meters away to the north is a crematorium. It's huge. It's the biggest crematorium I've ever seen. It's obviously incredibly high capacity, and it uses seems to use water pipes. So it actually uses a water system of dissolving the body in extremely hot water and moving it through very quickly. And this is a, a pretty good system, actually. It's, it's very it's very green, actually. You know, you have, and then 20 minutes away, you have an airport, and that airport is a, a dedicated lane for human organs. It, it specifically says it. And so they can fly them to the East Coast, to no. Shanghai. Yes. And so then Shanghai, there's a hospital, we know of at least one, which is uh, has a relationship with the Oxo Infection Hospital. They, they pretty clearly, they're, they've... Uh, their liver transplant rate has gone up 200% in the last two years. Uh, their kidney transplant rate has skyrocketed as well. Uh, so clearly these are, you know, uh, as I say, these are big, big money makers, big money. Uh, people argue about the, how to estimate it. I would give it at least $10 billion, but I think it's sometimes I've estimated more. Uh, 10 billion just from China? Yeah, yeah. How many, hold on a minute. How many people do you estimate are being essentially what I can describe as sacrificed every year? Well, we don't really know because it's hard to know how many organs they get, viable organs they get out of each person, right? That's something that's, it's not like we're walking around with a clipboard in China kind of going, well, yeah. you know, did you get, you know, the full two lungs? Let's put it this way. If you were to harvest a person correctly and they were in perfect health and you could line up the, the transplant, the recipients, and you could line them all up at a specific time. They could even be in different hospitals. You'd rush the organs to these different hospitals. But you could make 750000 to a million dollars, U.S., off a single person. 
technically, if they're all foreigners. Now, it's also true that probably they throw some organs away. Probably it doesn't work like that. Real life rarely works out that way. So we don't really know. We do know is that they are doing about 60,000 transplants to 100,000 transplants per year. And we base that on the Chinese hospital figures in 2016 before we published our report in 2016, which showed this number. And then after that, of course, all the hospitals took away all their numbers off their websites and stopped talking about it. Do we know if the the receiving bodies are all Chinese people or are they foreign nationals as well? No, no. I think it's it's uh, probably foreign nationals are minority uh, you mean the, the, the organ tourists, as we call them. We call them foreign organ tourists. They're definitely, they come from, well, from Dubai, for example. Uh, there's a huge, uh, the Chinese at least, we don't have an ad for this in Arabic or anything, but we've certainly seen on the Chinese side attempts to attract that market, the halal market. So the halal organ market, they literally have put together videos where they show you the hospital and then show you there's a Muslim prayer center. This is a country which, you know, endlessly closes mosques. But here's the Muslim prayer center and here's the Muslim canteen. It's all halal. It's very nice. And they interview some patient from the Gulf states who says, I had a great experience here. Okay, so, you know, is that proof? Well, no, it's but it's pretty close to proof. It's, it's something that suggests that this market is, is a, a big one for them. Uh, Uyghurs are Muslim. Now, they may not be the best Muslims in the world, if you, depending on how you want to judge people, but, but they don't eat pork, that's for sure, okay? And unless they're forced to in the camps, in which a lot of them have been now. But they don't eat pork. They, uh, many of, some of them don't drink or smoke, uh, certainly. The uh, and they are reasonably healthy people, reasonably. Uh, so for all these reasons, their organs are, are prized, particularly by people in the Gulf states. That's pretty clear. Uh, for the Japanese, uh, the interest was maybe more in Falun Gong because Falun Gong were known to be very healthy. They didn't drink or smoke, right? They were fairly healthy. They did these fairly healthy Qigong exercises, which uh, Japanese sort of like that kind of thing too. Uh, the other big, there's other big markets. Everybody's got a, a national style here in the South. Koreans do it hospital to hospital. The Japanese do it like a big tour group and they go to a special hospital, which is called the China Japan Friendship Hospital. They've done this for many years. Uh, the Taiwanese just use Google as their, that's how they set it up because there's this thing called Google and that's their. <laughs> that's their fixer uh google's so, their fixer because they can speak chinese yeah i'm trying to trying to kind of get myself in the head of somebody so i had a friend of mine that um needed a kidney kidney transplant and she was on dialysis for i think five or six years waiting for an opportunity to get a transplant and what she would have given to be able to get access to a kidney um to essentially help her live her life and how easy and accessible it is for someone to be able to buy a kidney, um, not just in China, but anywhere. Is it, is it something that's not difficult to do if you've got the money? Or do you need to know the right people? The big difference between China and everywhere else is if you feel that way, the way your friend did, you can get one in two weeks. You can get a match. 
in two weeks, the operation can be overdone and dusted in two weeks. In fact, they have cases of people coming in with a, uh, an acute crisis in their liver and so forth. And then in four hours later, they were able to give them a new liver, which means they did it to order. Okay, that they have a stable, large stable of people with all the different blood types and tissue types out there, right? Uh, and then if you can match it, which is not hard with computers and so forth, you can do this fairly quickly. And then you can march that person in and take out their organ and then put it in the other person. Uh, as I said, you would probably lose on the other organs because the organs only have a limited shelf life. Although the Chinese have become very clever with that too. They use a system called ECMO, which oxygenates organs and so forth. They're able to preserve them about three times longer using this system. Uh, now, you know, without getting into all the medical aspects of this, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, these, these are all good medical uh, procedures. The ECMO is a fantastic procedure. It saved many people's lives during the, uh, during this, the COVID pan pandemic. Uh, terrific system. It was developed uh, in the West and mainly in America. Medtronic was a great company producing this. Uh, but the Chinese use it for live organ harvesting. Okay, so that's the dual use here. All right, and, and the, then they bought a lot of these ECMO machines, the portable ones from Germany. And they were continuing to buy them until they switched to ventilators when COVID came in. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and that was, of course, you know, the summer of 2019. Uh, and you can actually see the drop off. There's an immediate drop off because actually COVID was well known in, in China at the time within medical circles. COVID was going on in the summer of, of 2019 and you didn't know about it. All right. I mean, maybe the WHO didn't know about it, but anybody with a brain, anybody who could actually look at the evidence that was accumulating knows about it now because it's obvious so but we can look at trends like that and we can say we know how this is being done over time we know that the first act when the uyghurs were being oppressed when the sort of 2016 they, they decided to track down the uyghurs in a big way and the first thing they did was test everybody all the uyghurs 13 15 million of them they gave them all blood tests. Now, they also said, oh, well, you know, they, they also, some of them they gave uh, DNA tests to. But that's actually just a form of tissue typing as well. So this was really, really alarming because I've interviewed so many people, people who were actually given these tests. Everybody was. It was a, called a health check. It was obligatory, except it was not obligatory for Han Chinese. If you were Chinese and you lived in Xinjiang, and that was about half the population, you didn't have to do a health check. Then the arrests begin. Then the camps are built. So you tell me what's going on. I mean, clearly they were setting up these options. Now, the fact that they, you know, haven't gone through, I'm estimating that it's about 25 to 50,000 people. This is based on recollections of people who were in the camps who are disappearing to be harvested every year. We do think, I, I do think that, you know, that number is significant. That uh, you know, fifty thousand people are being killed uh, every year. That's that's a very 
big number. Now you were nominated. You were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. How on earth did that come about? And how did you feel? Well, that was a, it. Was came back. I had a, I wrote a pretty good book called The Slaughter, mm-hmm. which is still on Amazon. It's a little dated now, but it's actually well. It's it's not that dated. It's, it's well worth reading. Um, I'm genuinely proud of that book. It took me seven years to work it out to do the research and write it. Um, and it was really a, mostly about Falun Gong, but the first chapters on the Uyghurs. And uh, and my next book is, I'm calling it the Xinjiang Procedure. I'm actually using a chapter titled Last Book. To sort of, and, and this one is going to be about these more recent findings. Uh, and this one, it will probably concentrate a little bit more on the investigative process as well. Uh, because I think, you know, I've just reached that age where I'm sort of can still do this. And so when you when you consider your situation, you, you're, you've done some great work. Your book has been read by many people around the world. Do you do you think that you're on a never ending journey to frustrate the Chinese government and uncover uh, un, uh, uh, stones and annoy people along the way do you think that that's yeah yeah i think that's right (laughs) uh my wife complained about this she sort of said after i'd done my book she sort of said why don't you do something different why don't you you know well you know you've proven what you can do here you don't have to you don't know anybody anything and i was kind of like yeah you're right you know and other journalists could pick it up but they didn't Okay, that was the thing. It was a complex topic, it turned out. You know, look, you were saying in the beginning, you know, it's like give us a the elevator pitch, but that was a really long elevator, man. I mean, that was a long, that was a big building. Okay? We, we, t- we took the stairs. We took the stairs. We took the stairs. It's not that easy to give an elevator pitch. It's a complicated topic. It involves, you know, economics, it involves medical, it involves some real understanding of how the Chinese think especially the leadership, right? That, you know, they can do two things at once. They can make money and kill people at the same time. For some reason, people find that just, you know, blow, blows their minds. I don't know why. Tell, tell me, hold on a minute. Let me just go back a bit. Because I watched a video clip earlier on today with you, with the doctor that was talking about some of the actions that he'd taken himself. Um, and I find it, I find it, really really unnerving and uncomfortable watching a guy that's been through the process of of organ removing and yet is there on camera talking about what he did and explaining the horrors of the situation as it happened how did you find him how did he come forward what was what was involved there how did i find him no he found me i was at a i was giving a talk at westminster you know and was there sort of they were asking me why more doctors hadn't come out. And I sort of said, this is one of the hardest things. I mean, the, there's, you know, doctors love their families too, and they don't want to leave their families behind. And uh, actually a lot of doctors, uh, surgeons in China, who uh, have done exactly this kind of surgery, transplant surgery, uh, they have an incredibly high suicide rate. And they're also very rich, a lot of them. See, so some of these transplant surgeons are also sort of stars. Uh, within the Chinese medical field and outside of the Chinese medical field. They have, you know, they're famous for their web pages where they show their calligraphy and their fancy car and all this kind of thing. 
people know they're making money off this. Uh, and Vertotti did not. I mean, he just was forced into doing this once. And uh, he really did. I mean, that, that whole story in the, in the film, I didn't, I did nothing to do with that film. They just interviewed me for it and interviewed him for it. But, you know, it's true. He honestly did not really think about what he'd done that day or tried to put it in the back of his mind until he came to this talk. And when I was talking about it, he was like, my God, I, I, I did this. And he stood up and said that in Parliament. I mean, they opened it for questions. This man stands up and says, I did this with my own hands. And I said, well, can I ask you the questions? I'm not interested in your question. Can I, I want to ask you questions. And interestingly enough, I guess this is what's fascinating about it to me, is that there were a bunch of staffers there from several uh, member MPs' offices, right? And now one of them stayed behind and said, oh, you know, maybe I should take this guy's number. You know, was like, you see what I mean? Uh, but that's fine. There's a there's long-term effects of these things. And his was very unusual that a doctor was willing to come out. But the point is, he's not a doctor anymore. That's what protected him. He okay. never passed his medical exams in Britain. Uh, and he never really kept up with the field. So in a sense, he had less to lose. Okay, just uh, let me ask a couple of questions. China's one place in the world. Where, where is another country that this kind of stuff goes on at big, in big numbers? Well, that, that country no longer exists. It's called ISIS. Okay. Okay, okay. so okay. ISIS. Okay. We do have evidence that ISIS was had a, bunch, a couple of doctors, maybe two or three, who were transplant surgeons who were going around with them, and they were trying to make, a, you know, a sort of a spin-off profit by, by cutting people open and taking out their organs and transplanting them, presumably. There was a, an American unit which overran an ISIS position and found a bunch of bodies which had been cut open and just the organs taken. And I think just the kidneys and liver. It wasn't uh, super advanced stuff, maybe hard. Uh, so we know that ISIS was doing this, but I, as I used to say in kind of a jokey, it's a really sick joke, I suppose, but I don't think their hotel facilities are particularly good. Okay, compared to China. Um, the point is that we know for sure they were doing it. We suspect strongly that North Korea has done this, but we don't know that we don't have any evidence of organ tourists coming in, you know, from Germany or America or Britain or anything like that. Uh, we have no evidence of that. Vietnam, clearly, the Chinese were sort of trying to get Vietnam on this. Uh, to do this because they sent a bunch of their top surgeons down there and they were training them in this area. Uh, but we don't know that Vietnam ever really moved into this area. Now, the obvious choice would be Thailand, but I don't think Thailand wants to do that. I think Thailand has a really good reputation and there's a lot of money to be made in fertility, for example, and, and so forth. There's, you know, all sorts of sexual problems and so forth that can be cured in Thailand. I mean, you know, why would you want to mix yourself up in this? Now, ISIS makes perfect sense. Uh, mm. And we don't have any evidence, for example, that this spread to Russia. Just, be, just before I finish, um, how, and, and give, me a, give me an answer that, that, that we can have a takeaway with this, really. For, for, it's a two-part question. First of all, what can people do to fix this or what can be done to fix this type of problem number one and number two is there anything practical listeners right now could do 
on a micro scale, daily basis to, 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 to make a difference or to create an impact? Yes, there's, there's, actually, there's, there's actually two really good answers to those two questions. One is they have to re- you have to read something because you, 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 you won't believe this. You shouldn't believe this just from some podcast with us talking. I mean, that shouldn't be persuasive to somebody. They should sit down and read something. It doesn't have to be my work. There's other work out there. They can look at the uh, End Transplant Abuse in China website, Big International Coalition. Uh, they can look at the London China Tribunal that was held last year. Uh, they can look at my book, The Slaughter. They can look at anything by Matthew Robertson. It's a terrific book. Uh, anything by David Madison, David Kilgore. They did a book called Bloody Harvest. Uh, but they've got to read something, something substantial. The second part is really easy. The medical world holds the Trump cards at this table. It's not the politicians. If the medical world were to stand up as one and say, the World Health Organization has got it wrong. This is a really, because of the World Health Organization, of course, has been defending China and saying there's not enough proof on this and so forth, just the way they did with COVID, all the rest of it. Uh, if the if the medical world were to rise up that way, it would change everything, all right? I mean, it would absolutely, you know, why? Because doctors are the most trusted people in societies, at least in Western societies. Uh, and so the obvious thing is to talk to your doctor. I don't care if it's your dentist, okay? I don't care if it's your chiropractor. It doesn't matter. Just Ask them about this. If you've read something and you say, I read something kind of interesting on this. Maybe it was just this article that I read called the Xinjiang Procedure or whatever. You read that and then you say, I read about this. And what have you, have you heard about this? Is, do you have an opinion on this question? That is how grassroots movement starts, really, within the med- especially within the medical world. That's what pressures them is that sense of like, people are talking about this. I have to have a response of some sort. I can't just leave it in this gray zone where I don't know, right? Because they shouldn't be leaving it in this gray zone. This is the worst thing that has happened in the medical community since the Second World War, since the Holocaust, and since the Japanese were doing their bizarre medical testing on the Chinese. this This really, really needs to end here it needs to end as quickly as possible uh and it needs to really end because these people are innocent this is the other thing we are not talking about just prisoners we're not talking about oh the poor prisoners of china who were murderers or rapists or whatever and now they're they're being savaged they're they're being executed and you know i know a lot of europeans have very strong feelings about this that you know you should never execute anybody and the state should never execute anybody but to me, I'm sorry, I don't lose sleep over that, worrying about a murderer in Chinese prison and how they're being treated. I do lose sleep over a pregnant woman being disemboweled and killed for this, okay, who did nothing but practice her faith or stood up for her people or used the words Allah Akbar. I mean, I don't give a damn. This is, this is the worst thing that we have seen, and this is what exactly the kind of thing that the medical world should be standing up and, 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 and uh, making themselves very clear on this and not just expecting, oh, we have to go along with China, you know, this, 
you know, I understand the politeness and the business about we all want to respect China and so forth. I understand that. I've lived in China for years. Okay, right. I get it. But, uh, but to truly respect the Chinese people, you demand explanations in these areas. Okay, that's what you do. This is not about crossing hands between universities, you know, medical universities in China and medical universities in the United States. This is not about legitimizing this kind of thing. It is not about training nurses. This is about life or death. Uh, anyway, yeah, you can see where I'm going with this. This It's a yeah. very simple response, though. Talk mm -hmm. to your doctor. Talk to your dentist. I mean, it really, and it doesn't even have to be a big propaganda thing. And how could you say that? No, none of that. No, just ask them. What do mm -hmm. they think? Mm -hmm. Uh and this is something very immediate that can be done. Mm -hmm. uh, and out of this, if you have one listener who actually wants to turn into an activist, there's always one in some in the audience, always one is going to turn into a great activist down the road. Contact ETAC, uh, contact the End Transplant Abuse in China, uh, the Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China. Uh, they have all kinds of ideas and suggestions. And contact the Uyghur movement, because this is a very important part of it. Ethan, thank you so much for sharing this information with us today. Thank you for giving us an understanding of something that we're all so oblivious to. And we either hear about this kind of stuff and don't want to know anymore, or we turn a blind eye to it, or we don't even believe it's real. And the fact that this kind of stuff exists on this planet is just heartbreaking just to even imagine. Absolutely. Is this absolutely real? And that's what rivets me about it is uh, it's very rare to find something that sounds like a conspiracy story and it's actually true. It's very mm -hmm. rare. There's an immense amount of junk out there and garbage theories and so forth. This is, this is one that's just absolutely, I, uh, every time I double down on this, it's, I find more proof every time. And I've just come back from a major trip, and once again, it's there. Uh, so, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So there we have it. I kind of come away from episodes of the show with stories of hope. Lift us up. Let us let us let us look forward in a positive way. But I just came away from that feeling dark and kind of empty and sad and I can't imagine what it must be like to be exposed to that kind of stuff, to live a life around that kind of stuff. But the thought of people having their livers, their kidneys, their hearts, their lungs cut out and in some cases while they're still alive begs belief, it really does beg belief. This is a, a hard-hitting episode, but one I hope that you've taken something from and learned something from, and one that I hope that you might be able to take a bit of action towards. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with, and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading 
public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.